Okay, everybody. Yeah, a little, little awkwardly named I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Bible. It is my pleasure uh, to introduce Dr. Linda George to you this evening. Um, she is a faculty member of several departments, including psychology and sociology, and as you're in nursing and a few Psychiatry, other Psychiatry. divinity. So she's, she's a... Um, she has lots of knowledge to share with us, and we're going to have a great discussion, hopefully, tonight. Um, the theme of the talk is the price we pay for traditional American values, and she'll talk for a little bit, and we encourage you all to join in and ask questions and create a good dialogue. So uh, why don't you join me and welcome in Dr. George. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm learning a so many things about undergraduate life that I, you know, that just, that just passes me by and I don't know what's going on, so this is great. Um, I don't want to mislead you. We also benefit in many ways from traditional American values, but one of the issues with strong values is we tend to take them as so, so appropriate, so good, that we tend not to question them. The stronger we know the value, the less we question it, and the more we tend to blame groups who don't subscribe to that value and think that they are somehow wrong, misguided, or something like that. And I do think that there are ways that, and I think the research evidence suggests, and I'm talking about social psychological research evidence by and large, um, <coughs> that suggests that we do pay a price for some of the values that we hold most dear in our society and seldom question. And um, so I just wanted to raise that issue here. And it's not that I'm going to try and talk you out of traditional American values, although I might, might like you to moderate them a little bit. I think that might be a good thing to do. Uh, first of all, what, are, what would you say are, are the core American values? I would put individualism at the very top, I agree. And that's one where we pay a very, very high price, and I'll get to that in a little bit. How about the nuclear family, family structure? Mm, yeah, okay. Or, or I mean the... Yeah, that's pretty traditional American. Mm -hmm. Other things? I believe in democracy. Belief in democracy, okay. Meritocracy, do you think we really, well, yeah, okay, I'll buy that. Yeah, I'll buy outwardly that. we say meritocracy, <laughs> but it doesn't always happen <laughs> like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Capitalist economy. Capitalist economy, that's big. And I think they're really two, I think the capitalist economy really stands for two major <coughs> underlying values that we have. One of them is materialism. We are a very materialistic culture. And the other is a strong belief in the benefits of competition. And, and that that's the way to go and that's, how, that's the way to do it. So I think capitalist economy actually embodies a number of core American values. Anything else? I might add active as opposed to passive. I think we're, one of the things that's very hard for Americans to do is to be patient or to be passive even if that's what is the most likely to have a good outcome. And by the same token, I think we are very much into dominance and power, as opposed to being passive in that sense. 
Um, and so I think these are some of our core values. And I just don't know about the extent to which we really question them and, and understand the ways they affect our everyday behavior and the ways they penetrate into so many different areas of our life. Uh, let's start with what I think is probably the number one value in, the, in our culture, and that is individualism. What, what else is there? If not individualism, what? Community. Community. Mm-hmm. Conformity. Conformity. Okay. Conf um, conformity. Conformity, maybe. Interdependence. Interdependence is a good one. That's a good one. In our society, we tend to value the individual above everything. And most of us expect, for, take it for granted, that our number one allegiance will be to ourselves as an individual, not even to our nuclear family, but to ourselves as individuals. And there are great contrasts across the globe. Uh, there are many cultures where the collectivity is considered more important than the individual. Where are those cultures? Well, any sort of communist government generally favors that. <coughs> generally. Well, I think it goes back further than that. Mm -hmm. Even like the Israeli kibbutzes and stuff. Mm -hmm. That's a good example. We've got several people sitting in here who will come, for, at least historically, from collectivist cultures. Asia. Asia is essentially all uh, collectivist cultures. Um, and parts of Africa are as well. And things are very different then, there. Uh, for example, uh, and with apologies to my social psychology students, because a lot of this they're going to know. Um, everybody knows what self-esteem is? What is it? None of my students can answer that. What is it? Like one's view of oneself. Okay. And what's high self-esteem? High self-esteem, um, a good or um, like a good estimation of one's values. Yeah, you like yourself. Yeah. Think you're a pretty good person. And all cultures, so far as we can tell, recognize that concept. They may not have it for a word in colloquial conversation, but all people that in all kinds of cultures recognize can think about themselves as an object and can report, obviously on the basis of previous considerable previous thought. Uh, whether they think they're basically a good person or a bad person. That doesn't change. What changes across cultures are the things that, that kind of trigger people to feel better or worse about themselves and what they do about it if they don't feel particularly good about themselves. In the United States, this is where our individualism, I think, shows very, very strongly. We tend to think in terms of personal achievements and personal failures. And there are parts of the world where that is simply not even really thought about. They think about the success or failure of the collectivity, whether the collectivity be the family, the local community, or whatever. There are pluses and minuses to individualism. There are pluses and minuses to um, collectivism. I think we pay a lot of price. Um, 
Where is life expectancy the highest in the world? Startup? <laughs> Cam? But where, but where would we be about in life expectancy? We're pretty, pretty high. Pretty low. We're what? Pretty low. We're 23rd. Yeah. We're the most affluent country in the world, and we're 23rd in life expectancy. And if you go to infant mortality, we're 46. We're even worse. We're lousy. And I and and I believe, and I believe the research evidence suggests that a significant, substantial proportion of that is because of our individualistic culture. Almost all the countries that have higher life expectancies than ours are collectivist cultures. Not richer than us economically. They don't have better medical care. Uh, none of that. But they are collectivist in their orientation. We pay a very high price for kind of going it alone in our society. I think that price takes a, is, takes a toll on family relationships, other social relationships, health, happiness, all of those kinds of things. And yet, uh, I've seen no real challenge to the, the, if anything, I see individualism increasing over time in this country. There is no collectivity. There's no collective basis of action, essentially, in the United States now. Uh, the biggest changes I've seen in my lifetime are in the labor market. Uh, you all will never know, and maybe it's good. Uh, you all will never know what it used to be like. I come from the baby boom cohort. We were kind of caught in the middle. Uh, our parents had it the best in terms of the way the economy uh, operated. It used to be that actually company loyalty really meant something. It used to be that employers wanted to hire as good a people as possible, and if they performed well, they wanted to keep them forever. They didn't want to lose them to anybody else. They didn't want turnover. Uh, they wanted pe they want they would be loyal to their productive workers, and they wanted their productive workers to be loyal to them. Uh, employers competed something we belong we believe in with each other in terms of offering benefits ranging from health insurance and health insurance and you know other perks, sick leave, vacation time, how much vacation time, all that. Basically, you're entering a world where you're going to I don't care who signs your check, you're going to be self-employed. Your company is not going to want your loyalty. And they're also not going to give you loyalty. It won't happen. It will not happen. Uh, you will manage your own pension. In my parents' generation, it was what they called defined benefit contribution. Uh, pension, defined benefit. That means my parents knew from the get-go exactly what they did every month when they retired. And it was generous. My generation, it's called defined contribution. They put in so much for us, make no guarantee as to as to what that what return that's going to bring. Uh, that's up to the you know the 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 skills of the people who invest in the pension plan. For you all, it's going to be neither. You're going to have to self-insure, and you're going to have to self-insure on virtually everything. This is individualism brought to an extreme form. 
there are reasons why we should operate as collectivity. Pension should be an insurance policy. Think about insurance. Nobody wants to make a claim even though you pay premiums. So you pay premiums to protect because your personal risk is low of, of needing it. But if you need it, the consequences could be devastating. So that's why there should be long-term care insurance as a collective under this kind of issue. I think individualism has gone amok in our society, and I think it is leaving people hanging out there in ways that, frankly, even I couldn't imagine when I was your age. Shoot, I was a, I was a flower child. I thought it was all going to be love and community and music and all that stuff. <laughs> I was wrong, but at least I had it while I was young. And I don't know about y'all. Individualism. I think we need to moderate it badly. I kind of hope that the, uh, I mean, your characterization of the way that it was before, uh, it doesn't really strike me as kind of gelling with what I remember. And, and maybe what do you remember? Look at you. I mean, remember from what I, like from history classes. And oh, okay. And one too many marks in okay. society as classes, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, I, I do think the kind of like the before times where, you know, there was company loyalty and then people were locked in and Th there's, a there's a reason why everyone had to unionize, and it wasn't because. Oh, you're right. I'm, mean, not, I'm not even <laughs> talking about then. Okay. I'm talking about the 1950s, and I'm talking about post World War only. What I have seen. World War II. Only what is, I, I have observed happened since then. Okay, so like. And the really big decade. union organization was in the first okay. half of that. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Back then, yes, absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really in a short term history here. Okay. But you're quite right. And I think we need labor unions now. Oh, okay. I think all the conditions are back where, why isn't labor organizing? Why aren't they seeing that they are being exploited? You know? Why did we let the unions go down the tube? We don't have protection. Workers don't have protection. And you can be, you can have 27 <coughs> years of education and you can be just a worker. Because that's what physicians are in hospitals now. They are just salaried and so, it used to, you know, you think the unions are for the people who don't have high level of education. They got to work with their hands. They probably don't think real well. All that kind of thing. That's what we all are now. We're not university professors. But that's what most everybody is now. Um, the kind of retreat from the practice of medicine, for example, is incredibly strong right now. So the things that have traditionally uh, kind of bought you an advantageous position in society, a lot of education. Um, we still do better than those with low education. I will never say anything other than that. But um, you certainly do not do as well relatively as used to be the case. And what do you mean by do as well? Because, I mean, they are workers. That means they've lost some attention. Pardon me? I mean, you, you say they're not doing as well because they've become workers. Mm -hmm. Doesn't that mean they've lost independence? That they haven't lost their individual, they'll put up with it because they buy individualism. There's individuality more because the <coughs> doctors are trying to, you know, beat back the insurance companies, which I think is the root of the problem. Um, and no, 
just won't have an 18-year-old high school judge say you're not allowed to give that tip. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to your patient. Yeah, that's precisely it. You have to go through the insurance companies at every turn, and they always deny it because the people that are responsible for the insurance companies are the ones that are trying to make the quickest buck, and they're just making a killing. The people who run the insurance companies at the highest level, those are the ones that are making the most money, you know, in the, the upper middle class and the lower <coughs> upper class, because that's all they do, everything is to get a quick buck, like you're saying. That's individualism at its finest right there, and capitalism. And capitalism. And again, don't take me wrong. I'm not ready to go join a commune. There was a time in my life when I was, but <laughs> I'm not ready to go join a commune. I think that, you know, I don't think I could live comfortably in a really, a very strongly collectivist culture. But I know I could live more comfortably if we moderated the uh, kind of unthinking, unwavering commitment we make to individualism that we don't think in terms of collective solutions to problems. We don't. It's interesting. Look at the environment. Do people care about the environment more than they did 50 years ago? I think certainly so. But if you look at environmentally, where the real action has taken place, it's like in all these individual things. Like, you know, now 73% of Americans recycle in one form or another. Okay? They recycle at least to some extent. Well and good. But they do not get together and like plan communities or plan developments in ways that are environmentally, environmentally sound and not and not at least not economically disastrous. Maybe not maximize profits, but they don't have to be disastrous. We do not tend to think about collective responses and collective solutions to things. And I think we pay a terrible price for that, frankly. And it makes us put up with stuff we shouldn't put up with. We shouldn't put up with the kind of working conditions. Uh, I, I have a graduate student who's doing her dissertation on something that's called underemployment. That, as far as I know, that word didn't exist 10 years ago. And now it's all over, not only just in scientific literature, it's in Money Magazine, it's in you know Business Weekly, it's in AARP Magazine. Um, and underemployment means we have kept unemployment very low in our society. But we've done it by making lots of lousy jobs. And people are working, you know, lot, lots more people are working than, than, than if we had high unemployment. But they're working at barely livable, barely able to make a living kind of jobs. And again, we do not think about collective responses to these things. We just think about how am I going to beat you out so that I'm a little better off than you are, rather than how am I going to, you know, I'm going to get hired in some class of new, new employees. How am I going to be the one of, you know, out of ten that makes it? And that's how we think about things. That tends to be how we think about things. It's very interesting. Your cohorts are going to have many, in, the jobs may not be as good, but you're going to be sufficiently well educated that you're going to do just fine. Uh, so you, I don't really want you to leave here thinking you're going to be, you know, starving on the street or something. You're, you're going to do just fine. But I was in the baby boomers. I was with the people where, you know, we didn't have desks in schools because there were so many of us. Our parents told us that. America was wonderful and everybody could do well here and uh, if you worked hard and blah 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 and instead of being competitive toward one another 
we were the people who developed the the kind of political activism and 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 those kinds of things that happened in the 60s and 70s. You people are small cohorts. That means you're gonna have to support a lot of us when we're old. A whole lot of us when we're old. Every one of you is gonna have to support one and a half old people through your social security taxes. So I want you to get good jobs, I really do. <laughs> but, um, but, but you, so you people are from the cohorts will have, which will have many more open spaces, so to speak, more open slots. And yet you are much more competitive with each other than we ever were, much more so. Much more so. Like it, it might be kind of the, the disease where however little you see, you say, okay, I can just fit right there. But you see a huge, big area and you want to occupy the farthest thing, the, you know, the best thing possible. And I think that fosters competition. You know, whereas before there were so few, you know, a lot fewer jobs for the taking um, in terms of, you know, diversity and amount in there that it was whatever nearest thing was there, it was suitable. Mm -hmm. And now with all the, the wide array, pick anything. I think there's something to that. Let's talk a little bit about competition. We really believe in this country in competition compete to get in this dorm, compete to get in this school, compete to get everything. Um, there is, even more so than for individualism, there is very, very solid research evidence that if you're in a physical performance arena, you will do better if you're competing against somebody than if you're kind of going against the clock or going against your personal best, so to speak. So you run, want to run your fastest, you run, you run against somebody, not just against the stopwatch. Um, you know, you want to hit more, you know, ace, ace more serves. Uh, you'll, you'll do that when you have an opponent more often than when you have this thing coming at you from a machine. In physical performance, human competition is performance enhancing. In everything else we've studied, it is a detriment in educational and occupational arenas, the more competitive the reward structure, the worse the performance of the people performing in those structures. Think about being in a class. My students know this already, did I apologize. There, I, I guess there are some professors, they never should, and I hope there aren't, but certainly in high school you would probably be aware that there are teachers who say, the top 10% will get an A, or the top 15% will get an A, and the next 30% will get a B, and then 40% will get a C, and so they, they create a distribution. And that's a very competitive structure. It says only a few of you can get the top grade, and you've got to beat out a lot of other people in order to get that top grade. A non-competitive structure says everybody can have an A. We're not, I'm not gonna give you an A, because you want one, I'm not gonna give you an A, but everyone has the ability to earn an A. I would like nothing better than to give everybody in this class an A. And if everybody performs at, the, at that level, sur surpasses this given threshold, I'm not, I'm not gonna worry about getting too many A's or being seen as a grade inflator or a sap or anything else. That 
that is when people perform better. If you go into a class of 100 and know that 10 people are going to get an A, or 15 people are going to get an A, I don't see how that can I, I don't see how that can be nearly as motivating as knowing that hey, this professor would be willing to give 50% A's, 60% A's, 80% A's, 100%. What I've got to do is I've got to perform at a given level. It's the same thing in the occupational market. People perform well when they know that if they perform well, they will be rewarded. It's their performance, it's what they do, it's not them beating out somebody else. And yet, our country is absolutely committed to the notion that competition improves performance, despite all kinds of research evidence. I mean strong, lab-based, field-based, real-world-based. It never happens with highly competitive structures in any arena other than the physical one that that brings people's performances out the best. focusing on how they can work together to produce well. Now there's a fair amount of exploitation, you know, wages are low in a lot of these countries, I'm not going to say it's great, but, but the more competitive we've gotten, the worse we've become economically, so I don't think tightening an already tight screw um, is really the way to take care of these issues. How would life be different if there weren't, if we didn't love competition? How, on what basis the standards become more competitive? Pardon me. Now? Yeah. How uh, how do we know that we're more competitive now than we were ten years ago, twenty years ago, fifty years ago? What we know is how people respond to various opportunity structures, and we also do very careful studies. And this is where we—I don't happen to study this part of social psychology, where literally, for example. Um, the behavior of college students has been observed and of medical students and of law students. And fewer people now, as opposed to earlier, for example, study together. It is not unusual to see materials disappearing. I just saw something um, among a graduate student at Duke that I've never seen before. My graduate student my advanced graduate student. And I have a younger graduate student who, I, you know, has to write what's called a dissertation proposal. They're about 50 pages and what the proposal is going to do. And the committee has to, it's kind of a contract. If your committee approves it and you do it, then, then you, do it, you do it fine. And, you, you know, you've met the requirements. And so Ashley said to me, you know, I just, I'm having a hard time seeing what one of the, thinking about one of these, what one of these look like. And I said, well, go ask Sarah. Hers was really good. And for the first time ever, Sarah said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna share this with you. We may be competing for the same job someday. 
kind of observations are made. Mine's anecdotal, but there are people who literally study these things. There are people who survey college students. College students self-report that cheating is at an all-time high. They self-report that. But, but isn't that also because, because increasingly collaboration is labeled cheating? I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, what do you, how could that be? Well, I mean, if you, if, I mean, collab, uh, on most, most assignments, the overwhelming majority of assignments are individual. I mean, and then you get, I mean, and often assignments where you're allowed to collaborate with someone, it's very unclear. Oh, I, I, mean, I like, agree, I mean, it's very I, unclear. I, I, I had a, I mean, anyone who was in this room last night saw like about 10 people from my algebra class sitting together working through the problems that met together. And it was completely collaborative. And I don't think and that was cheating. I mean, and, and I think we all observed propriety and it wasn't cheating. But to be perfectly honest, I'm not exactly sure where the line was. And it's, and it's possible that someone there overstepped the bounds. But I do think that there is kind of that thought where, I mean, for departments where there's supposed to be a lot of cheating, uh, which is engineering, math, sciences, are often the departments where people get together and do problem sets together, and that is considered to be cheating. Yeah. I mean, for me, like most of the, most of the cheating which I think happens at this university is not so much people lifting excerpts from their papers of their papers from the library or like Quite bringing stuff into the test, and, <laughs> I, and I'm sure that happens a lot. But from everything that I read about cheating. Most of it is people working together, together co collaboratively when their professors don't want them to be working together. <coughs> now th this may come back to individualism, like there's, there's too much of a focus by professors on individual performance. But I, I do think that collaboration happens a lot and I don't think that the, the upsurge in cheating is necessarily a sign that there's less collaboration. Okay, right, I don't think it is either. I, yeah. I don't think there's any relationship between amount of yeah. collaboration and cheating. I think what cheating has to do with is whether people, in fact, behave in a way that is congruent with the instructions of the professor. And if they don't, if the instructor says, don't, certainly can't look at somebody else's paper in a class exam, and they do, or they manage to take in somehow notes or something like that. I, th I think that, I think that there's a lot more, I think when students, I don't know, but I think when college kids self-report, they cheat more. Typically the questions have to do, they're pretty specific. Do you cheat on exams? Do you sometimes, do you, you know, how often? Do you ever cheat in terms of writing papers and, and use somebody's work as your own? How often? Uh, that kind of thing. I don't think it means homework assignments. I mean, I, I do know that every time I've seen something about it, who cracked significantly more and it's <laughs> th 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 than Trinity and it's often related to the fact that they just have a lot of problem sets and lab reports and uh, which everyone works together on and often you're not allowed to do that well if you if you if you saw <laughs> the, the, the Pratt student <laughs> speaks yeah let them speak <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it's a if you self-report that because um if you self-report cheating I wouldn't, if I collaborated with someone or what, I wouldn't self-report that I cheated. I wouldn't consider that cheating myself, mm -hmm. or else I wouldn't have done it in the first place. The fact that the majority of people are self-reporting, and that I there's a so higher too. incidence in cheating, I think there's a difference between what the professor would consider cheating and what 
be yourself a computer geeking. Yeah. No, but I think I think the realization happens on the survey when it says, "Have you worked on an assignment that was supposed to be for one student? Worked on it with many students?" And they're like, "Oh, yeah, yes." I think but that's not they know that the assignment was supposed to be for one student. Oh, no, no, they're definitely classmates. What the professor says, it's your own words. I know those questions are usually really that's very interesting. Do your professors? Say, do your homework and don't talk to anybody else about it. Yeah, yeah. Which is, yeah. yeah. You actually, you have to, you know, the community standards. You're not allowed to, you're not like allowed to look at anybody else's answers. Yeah. Yeah. And like big. Really? Yeah, that's part yeah. of the community standards. That's not part of the community standards. Professors will say, that's not a Like the big math classes that like everyone takes, like math 32, 103. Those you have to write at the top of your homework. Like I have abided by the Duke Community Standard in completing this assignment and sign it on every single thing. Yeah, yeah, but the Duke Community Standard doesn't say that you have to do it individually. It just says that you have to do it according to the instructor's wishes, which varies from instructor to instructor, and that depends on the class. But I've had instructors and I had an instructor in math class that said turn in one homework assignment for three of you, and I don't want to see you guys doing it individually. Homework was also worth 0% of our grade in that class, <laughs> and we had quizzes every week to make sure we'd done the homework, but he wanted to make sure that we're th bouncing ideas off each other and, you know, maybe yeah. discussing a few things that we might not have understood on our own. Yeah, in the class I teach now, I don't do assignments as such. It's a huge class, but yeah. in the class, when I taught research methods, I had assignments every week, and it never occurred to me to say, I want this to be all your own work. I encourage students to talk to each other and master the concepts and think about, you know, critique each other's stuff because this is like setting up a research project. It never occurred to me that, but as long as the, as long as the professor is clear, then I do think cheat is only when you do something that the, I would say when you know you're doing something that the professor has asked you not to do. And if the professors don't say anything, because that's how I handle my assignments, then I think that means that you can collaborate on it. I think the individual professors see it whatever way they intend it. Right. If they yeah. didn't say anything, they're like, well, I told you, know, you should have known that this was individual. Or in your case, you should have known it's It's okay to collaborate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it should be said more often. It probably yeah. should. Yeah. It's very interesting. I, I think that it's also important to like differentiate between, like, there's a difference when you're talking about cheating and you're talking about self-report data on uh, like things like problem sets or like homework assignments. And things like exams. It, depend, it depends on how the question was phrased. Right? Yeah, and 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 even even if you like work together on a problem set, and um, you don't consider that that cheating, that's one thing. I, I think it's a very big issue whether or not you recognize your actions to be cheating, and knowing that you've done something, knowing that you have cheated, you do it anyway, and why you do that, and and the reason why you do that is because you're clearly driven to improve your grade in order to beat other people yeah. and not- That's why I raised this all not right. Exactly. It's all, it's all not on, on, on trying to improve your own knowledge because it's not as important to you right. mm -hmm. as, as getting that grade. And I think that's, a, that's an issue. The thing is like you were talking about medical schools, 35 out of the top 50 don't have grades anymore. Mm -hmm. They've done away with right. it because research has shown that a high level of competition doesn't matter. There, a, a certain level of competition will improve your. Well, you, you have know, to have get, you know you have to keep people awake. You got to right, keep exactly. them on their toes. So thirty-five of the top fifty <laughs> medical schools are now pass fail, and it's all collaborative. You're you know everything is everybody learns collaboratively. But before before you get there in college, you have to kill each other. You, you, every, yeah, you have yeah. to kill each other to get there to 
Duke is on the low mm. end of pre-med um, horrifics. You know, yeah, I think you go so. to you go to Johns Hopkins, it's ten times worse. You go to Harvard, it's ten times worse. Yeah, I think, I think Duke so. does pretty well, but you still see it's some stuff that shouldn't here. happen, some stuff that should not be tolerated in you know this sort of community. I mean, and I agree, but I'm not entirely convinced. I'm just kind of back to the more historical perspective. But this is necessarily something which is new <coughs> or worse in previous generations. I mean, uh, like my, my dad is lectured here at length about his like introductory law class of two hundred people, and they were told that you know the bar association only wanted twenty, and so they had like Roman law test exams for oral and in Latin, and you know and they got managed to get the numbers too for that, and I've and you know all the stories of like tearing pages out of the books in the library and whatnot. I mean, I didn't really know that. Where did you go to law school? Uh, University of Cape Town. Uh, and, you know, and you get cultural differences. But I, I think, I mean, like, when I look at the historical perspective and people say it wasn't as competitive in America 40 years ago, I also wonder what these universities were like 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, sure, it wasn't competitive to get into Harvard in that if you were rich, you were set. Mm -hmm. But if you weren't, you just weren't going to Harvard. So I mean, I guess it was less competitive, but there were, I mean, the competition comes from the fact that opportunities are now being given to a far larger swath of the population. Well, there you have two, two American values coming uh, into uh, conflict, right? Yeah. The materialism, <laughs> we, we think that money, it does in fact represent in some ways the value of the human being. The more of it you have, the more valuable you are, and the more privileges you should have. You're entitled to more privileges if you have more money. We, we deeply believe that. So of course if you're richer, you should get into Harvard. But then, if we do believe in competition as well, and for whatever reason, some people who are not rich can academically compete as well as or better than some of the rich, that puts us in a deep conflict about which of our values to give the mo pay the most homage to. But, um, but both of those are very American ways of dealing with, of dealing with the problem. And uh, believe me, I think we're always tinkering and but we're fixing, making this better over here and letting this go over here. I just think, you know, I just think we need to balance more of the material society with the more kind of spiritual, emotional, cognitive, whatever you want to call it, immaterial, ethereal, whatever, uh, I think we need to, uh, I think we need to really look at our belief in competition because we believe that, we have a very specific belief that it improves performance. They I'm not talking about whether I choose to compete with you as much as setting up competitive reward systems. We tend to believe that competitive reward systems just bring out the best in us. And I think there's plenty of evidence that, yeah, you gotta keep people awake, but, uh, and you know, you have to, you don't give them things. We're not talking about the, the opposite of a competitive reward system being, we just give them everything. We're talking about that you make it so that if they perform at a certain level, they will get the reward, period. <coughs> and it's not that you're only the top three or only the top five or whatever, they will get the rewards. I mean, I agree, but there's also a limited number of resources. I mean, and, and there are places which, I mean, uh, for example, uh, in, I believe, China, uh, admissions to college is done based on this sort of this exam, 
and to get this score on this exam, you can go to Beida, and if you get this score, you're going to some unaccredited place which is going to charge you $15,000 a year and then give you a diploma which is worth nothing. And you know, <laughs> I mean, uh, but that do it doesn't strike me as being any less competitive. I mean, there comes a point in time where, I mean, and I mean, I guess, I mean, there, there's this, I mean, a limited number of people get to be boss in the end of the day. And to th I think, I mean, for me, I think there's just a lot more people competing for it than there ever were before. I'm not, I mean, I'm not saying Why everyone... Why do we have so many people who want to be boss? Because that's the rewards are greater. Everybody wants to be boss, though, right? The rewards are
yet I have the most incredible autonomy. I don't think I, I could have a job that gave me more autonomy. And when people say, what's the best thing about your job? I say, you know, it's being around bright people at all levels and having so much autonomy. I can reinvent myself anytime I want. I can change my research. I can change my teaching. As long as I do it well, they're perfectly happy with it. But I don't control anybody. And, you know, I have been approached about being in the dean's office for this or that and maybe eventually a dean. I would rather, you know, work in the cafeteria, frankly. I would never want to do that. I would ra definitely rather work in the gardens than do that. And so I, lo so I feel very much in control of my life, but I don't feel like I'm impinging on anybody else's. And I, so I do think it's different from self-control or self-determination. I agree. But this also kind of becomes another one of the American ideals, which I see very much in contrast to Europe. Uh, is sort of uh, Europe is much more reliant on the idea of the big business of the government, like the big structure, which has to come to them for you. America does kind of like small businesses. I, I do feel that. I mean, and, and I agree that most American companies like to uh, to ship their work overseas, and therefore, in response, Americans have been forced to turn increasingly to small business ventures, hoping they can make it. Well, I would actually disagree that America likes small businesses. Yeah, small businesses fucked in this economy pretty much. Yeah, because historically, I mean, you see all the small individual businesses being bought out by yeah, the big ones until you have few, if not one, corporation in each industry that's controlling the entire market. I think you're right on the government front in terms of big government is more palatable mm -hmm. in Europe than it is here. But I don't think in that. I don't think America's all that America's friendly to small business in, tr in the economic component of things. But I do think at the, I mean, at the at the high end, I mean, I, I think it is a lot more distinct at the high end where people have more, where they have the wealth to be able to make more decisions for themselves. Which you know, if you look at a lot of the professions, I mean, um, if you look at the law, a lot of people will, a lot of people would rather be. Sort of have their name on the on the part in the partnership rather than be part of some huge sort of intercontinental Latin and Watkins LLP. Uh, in finance, you do see a lot of the top people leaving the big names in Goldman Sachs to start their own funds and whatnot. And and I and I think that I mean, and this like this culturally kind of that idea of the person who strikes out on their own. Is a big American uh, that agree with it, individual it, initiative is part of an uh, yeah and, and and so being the your own boss I think is the real dream in America I mean CEO is kind of what people ascribe it's what a lot of people think being the boss means but I think that just in general it is far more about being your own boss and not being answerable to people I think a lot of people realize that the CEO answers to shareholders they like uh, they like it less than owning their own business. It's not just that. Before you know, I've I've spent a lot of time working in the medical center, and I used to have a very large grant program, and it was all you know. So my research enterprise was funded by grants, and I had about twenty-seven people who did work under me. They worked. They did the you know the day-to-day -day work on these grants. So I, technically, I was the boss. I didn't feel like I felt like they owned me, not that I owned them. Uh, I, that was not self-determination. I was tenured faculty. I would have had a job and a paycheck if I never wrote another grant. 
if I didn't keep the grants going, they would have, some of those would have to be laid off. I know they knew their families, their kids, their dogs. And I would literally stay awake at night worrying that I wouldn't get enough grant hits to be able to support these people who I thought had come to depend on me. There's your problem, you think collectively instead of individually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you cared about yourself, it wouldn't matter. That's right. But I actually could not look at myself in the mirror in the morning if I did that. Well, I did over time then decide I needed to, you know, that I don't want to be owned, but I don't want to own a, be owned, owned by them, and I, nor do I want to lord it over people. So I managed to get everybody eventually placed in um, other units where they did well, or a couple of them just moved, and I cut my operation way back so I wouldn't be owned. Um, but I think there are... Uh, on both so I think it's not all great being a boss. I understand mm -hmm. that. Uh, so I've, I've, I've been to, I mean, 20 people's nothing. Look at these big corporations. We're going to you know, lay off 5,000 people tomorrow or something like that. They're numbers, though. You know, yeah. That's, that's the thing. They don't know their right. families and their kids and their what their mortgage payment is and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, yeah, I just think that, you know, uh, the economists have done a great thing. They said in the last, this book came out in 2001, that I'm referring to, and it said in the last 50 years, so, you know, when it was talking about a short-term mm. historical perspective, that really America and Europe had taken very different ways of cashing in on the productivity increases they'd experienced. Uh, the United States put it into wages. And in Britain, they or in Europe, I'm sorry, they put it into free time. Do you have any idea how much paid vacation is required by law in countries like Germany? What? Six weeks? Up to seven now. Seven. That's wow. awesome. Wow. Seven <laughs> weeks a year. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it, again, these speak to some... It's not that I'm suggesting we do that, but we should look very carefully at what's the impact on lives of a structure that, that you know, will begrudgingly give you a little bit of time for vacation. And not, believe me, the higher up you are, you have to remain accessible. Even I, if I am out of town during the school year, have to be accessible. I have to leave my number and where I'll be and all this kind of stuff. And compare that to a society that has purposely taken increases in productivity and said our standard of living, it doesn't mean they haven't had raises, they have, but there's not been a raise in the standard of living that a particular job supports. They've taken that and put it into increased leisure time. I was uh, listening to NPR the other day that was saying that based on our productivity over the past five years, we should be taking an additional six weeks off from work, paid there vacation. You go. Because we're at our, you know, at the peak, we've plateaued, and those extra days are—they're nothing days. You know, it's just paid for no extra productivity, and so they should be vacation. You're absolutely right. That's right. And in terms of productivity, uh, the research shows that uh, it, like, when people go to work, and you know, bosses or the system, whatever, you have to sign in, you got to sign out. This is at some places, and you're expected to keep very close tabs on your time and not waste time and not take a long lunch and everything. Well, all the for years, the and this is the physiological psychology literature has shown that people are most productive on a work day when they are allowed to spend one quarter of it 
in discretionary activity. In other words, if you expect people to be on the jobs eight hours, and they, their hours are eight hours, you should allow two hours for just, good, you know, socializing, eating, uh, do making personal phone calls, whatever, because you will get more out of six hours of that person's time under those conditions than you will get out of eight hours of their time when they don't engage in any of those act other activities. And again, try telling that to American employers, you know. Try telling that to uh, principal investigators in science, too, for their grad students. Exactly. I mean, the, the beauty of being a grad student or working in a lab is that most of the time the PI is not there. And so you do take your hours and you do your uh, goofing around stuff. So that Autonomy you're more productive. and control are very good. Yeah. They are very good. <laughs> so that, on the other hand, you're goofing off and you're getting more productivity yeah. out of your hours. Yeah. And so you, nobody's you know, kind of watching over your shoulder and counting the minutes and you get, you're more productive in the hours you spend. But again, this is not kind of not the mentality we think in terms of. We, we think of people, you know, having to uh, kind of from the material point of view, if I'm going to pay you for these hours, you're going to work these hours. And uh, that's just the, the mentality. So part, I, clearly part of my gripe is that for whatever reasons, uh, social psychology, sociology, even economics, although it's taken more seriously out there, uh, political science, basically the social sciences I think have a lot to teach uh, in terms of, of improving people's individuals' lives while probably improving the, collect the collectivity or certainly not hurting it. And the message just doesn't seem to get out there and adopted, and it's see, I just think we would, you know, I'm one of these people who, I don't know how you are, if I get the slightest headache, I take a pill. If I have the slightest ache, I take a pill. Why? Uh, I mean, to the point where, for one of my birthdays, a friend gave me a sweatshirt that said Generation RX. So, we have a very scientific culture, and, it's all about scientism. Uh, right, but it's not because I love science, it's because I hate pain. And I feel, if there is something there that, why should I suffer unnecessarily ever? There will be necessary things I have to suffer that have not come under the control of science or anything else, but I should never have to suffer unnecessarily. But it's not like I feel I'm entitled to that and you aren't. I think what we really ought to be about as a society is, you know, certainly maintaining our integrity and, and those kinds of things, but it should be our goal for, for human beings to never suffer unnecessarily if there's anything we can do about it. And it seems to me some of our systems just aren't, aren't, certainly aren't set up with that the goal in mind. So moderate yourself. Mm -hmm. Can I ask a question? Sure. Um, this may like just start really, really basic. Um, going back to individualism, mm -hmm. um, I guess I'm really curious about the definition of individualism. Um, and I was thinking, I mean, because we've talked a lot now about you know job opportunities and the economy, but what about like personal in your personal lives, um, the familial realm? I mean, in this country, at least from what I've observed, it seems like individualism comes out to play really strongly there. You know, our care for our elders is like pretty pathetic, um, especially compared to like more collective culture. So I'm just curious what, you know, you know, or 
Black divorce Friday, rate. like this week, you know, um, what's your opinion of more of the domestic scene? Well, I think our divorce rate in, in large mm. part reflects an individualism where I do not, sub I will not, in, in this sense, I guess maybe I'm very American, but, um, you know, I'm not going to suffer pain. I would rather break up the marriage than kind of, you know, <coughs> suffer, not have my individual needs met, regardless of some greater needs of a family as a unit. And um, I have a number of graduate students that have for the last decade or so uh, from Korea, China, those places where their divorce rate is very low. And, and they're flabbergasted, and they just ask questions and say, you know, how can this be? Um, how could you destroy a family? The family takes takes precedent over the individual. Uh, so yes, intergenerational care. Um, I think marital relationships. Uh, I think we spend much less time with our children than we should. Um, a friend of mine did a study uh, called a number of years ago that she was shocked, and I was too, when she find, found the data saying who are the real latchkey children. Because for all that, when I hear the word latchkey children, I think of children maybe between the ages of maybe like 8 and 12 or 6 and 11. You know, they're young. They come from, from poor neighborhoods where or poor families where the family can't afford adequate daycare, that kind of thing. The most frequently unsupervised kids are the white children of two highly educated, career-oriented parents. You're working 12 hours a day. You can't spend that time with your children. That's right. And I think that, and and I think the work has to do with the that you you know you tell yourself as you work 12 hours a day that you're providing a better style of life, you know, a better home or, you know, higher quality resources than you would provide otherwise, and, and so forth and so on. So I think the individualism takes a tremendous toll. What in the world exists in this, in this, basically, unless somebody's dying or in an emergency, this, the, the saying, I'm sorry, I can't do that, I have to work, is never questioned. We absolutely accept that as a reasonable justification of not doing anything else that somebody might ask us about. I got, I got to work, and I'm talking about lawyers who these are not court hours; these are these are nights and weekends. I'm talking about physicians. I'm talking about accountants during tax season. I'm talking about all kinds of things. Um, but you know, that's. And, and, and we mean it when we say, I've got to work. We're not talking about uh, any kind of collective thing. It's our individual goal striving and self-actualization. So I think, we, I think we do pay a toll. And again, there's so much that's good about individualism. There really is. Um, and I'm certainly in favor of, of self-determination uh, self and that kind of thing. But I do think that we, we could mod we could we could reward other things as well. And we would be, we'd be better off if we were more balanced in that regard. Can I go back to, you were talking about the divorce rate. Um, and I guess a lot of people who get divorced think that their kids are better off um, if they have like two single parents who are happier and get along better than 
they are if their kids are living in a home where their parents are constantly like, fighting all the time. Um, is that not true? Are they wrong? It's, uh, you know, that's gone back and forth in the, in the research for a while. It was, you know, divorce is bad for the kids. Then it was divorce is good for the kids. Well, divorce is better for the kids than living in a highly conflicted, you know, uh, uh, home with all kinds of arguments and everything. Now, um, it's about a wash. The research suggests, and I think it's much higher quality, bigger samples and so forth, that either having your parents divorce or living in a family where you're in a home where your parents don't get along, does their buddy equally as bad or equally as good, however you want to put it. So basically it's a wash for the kids. It's, I guess, what the parents can tolerate, whether they can better tolerate arguing but yet being in the same house with the, both of them with their kids or better tolerate being apart. So then if it's a wash, why try to save the family? Uh, be, I, why, because why is I'm getting at the why is it why are why is the divorce happening? Are the most there's divorces where people truly you know kind of somehow mistreat each other? Probably not. It's just you know it's kind of you're not meeting my needs kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think it goes back to the individualism where people aren't willing to work and to compromise. Um, and that's where the yeah, or to, or to even say, you know, right now, this is not going to be a good time for me in this relationship because the circumstances, the way they are, this is not going to be a great time for me. But I can see light at the end of the tunnel. You know, it's when well, so-and-so finishes this or whatever. Um, just kind of the patience to, to wait it through. And um, so uh, that both that and the you know, also we believe in romantic love much more than any culture on the face of the earth. I was, I was just going to ask you a question about that, actually. It's not a question. <laughs> Listen, you, you just crushed my <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, then what, what do you think is real? I think that, um, well, let me put it this way. There is such a thing as romantic love. I just don't think it's the basis, a good basis for a long-term partnership. It's, uh, I mean, it's certainly, it feels real. And there are people, and as long as they recognize that this is who, who they are and what they're like, I think it's okay. There are some people who I think engage in what I call serial monogamy. I don't mean that they're even married. But they have an exclusive relationship with this person for a while, then on to the next, on to the next, on to the next, on to the next. Those are people who are kind of addicted to or, you know, committed to romantic love. Uh, and as long as you don't, as long as you don't kind of tell people you're making a lifetime commitment and then leave them in the lurch or have kids you have no intention of <coughs> having a commitment to, go ahead, have your serial rom romantic love kind of thing. In terms of the basis of a foundation, the foundation of a long-term relationship, it's much more what is called companionate love. And that's much more important over the long haul for that kind of thing. And that's the compatibility mm -hmm. test you're talking about? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, for the most part, where we're the same, we're better off, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, for we, but, but almost no societies believe in romantic love the way we do. They really do, they have the same fairy tales, but they recognize they're fairy tales. And I think, you know, when I look at the number of Cinderella's who showed up on my front porch on <laughs> Halloween, I'm going, oh, God, it's still there. <laughs> it's still there. So then are we looking for the wrong thing? 
like we're dating like other people and like we're looking don't let your romantic love is probably um, has an evolutionary role in terms of propagation of the species because your most kind of unrestrained and most frequent sexual activity is will be when you're experiencing romantic love and you know that's when people get pregnant more and things like that that keeps the species going so I think there is a basis for it in the human body but yeah I think you have to think about um, I mean in most good marriages there was a period of romantic love there was and it, it wasn't like it just extinguished like that but that over time it kind of it kind of becomes more companionate and you know and that in and, and, and then you you know in romantic love you think the other person is perfect in companionate love you know damn well they aren't and you still love them and uh, that's that's really nice you know it's not romantic love if you don't think they're perfect no I mean that's, that's the idea of romantic love is this idealized yeah. partner yeah. Yeah. it's, it's yeah. the reason I, I, I think that's a particularly deluded form of romantic love though yeah but I mean, that's so that's the point the whole yeah. concept yeah. 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 no no I, I think that there is such a thing as romantic love where you think the person may not be perfect but they're perfect for you which again may be a delusion but I mean it's, I mean, I, I think that of all the delusions that we subject ourselves to it's one of the less nefarious well but I think uh, well, we yeah. don't oh, no. recognize that it needs to evolve the reason why 52% of Americans are getting divorced is that like especially in like Hollywood where things are so jaded like I, I read a theory paper about this it's like the reason why Hollywood couples keep getting you know, married, divorce, married, divorce, is because they're trapped in this uh, ideal world where they think that, like, when you meet someone, when you spend intense amount of time with someone, you can either go two ways. You can either become a companion and realize that you have a compatibility structure, or you suddenly develop, like, wow, this is the correct person for me because you have a lot of physical chemistry with them. And so when you react to this physical chemistry, to this sexual chemistry, that, like, you idealize a person in romantic love, like you'll get married to them, and eventually this stuff like this, you get bored with a relationship, yeah. or you find it annoying to be in this relationship, and then you get divorced, and that's why, like, it's more important to have compatibility over. So like, like mm -hmm. I understand what you're saying with like with. But romance. it's one reason why long engagements work better, and mm -hmm. because you can only sustain kind of the height of romantic love so so long, and you begin to see that the person has clay feet after all, and <laughs> so forth. And then you're in a better position. You will have this nice history of romantic love behind you, but you will also have the ability to, to kind of ensure as much as we can, which is not an ironclad guarantee, but we can get a much better idea of whether the companionate, there's the basis there for a companion, companionate love as well. So, you know, and um, but frankly, I'm all in favor of cohabitation before marriage. Oh, my mother would watch uh -huh. my mouth out, but Absolutely. she no. said, but "How can you no. lead those poor children astray?" <laughs> <laughs> um, well, just, they talk about like teen magazine stuff, like the honeymoon period when you're dating, and it's like six months to a year, and then it like wears off. But um, cohabitation thing, I actually heard my mom told me that uh, like they actually, if people live together before they get married, they have a higher divorce rate. It doesn't help. Like you would think it would. It makes Depends sense. On, it I, would. I think you'd have to. But see it actually doesn't. And that's really complicated. You also have to look at whether they are. For instance, the cohabiting that works best is if you cohabit before you're first married. 
-hmm. A lot of cohabitation is by divorced people who think they've been burned and want to continue to have a relationship with some, obviously not their former spouse, but divorced people have a tendency to divorce. And so... They, they come in threes. <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, the, they have kind of unstable uh, relationships when they cohabit or not, but it seems to be because they're older, number one, and they've been married before, and all second marriages, for example, or cohabitations are less stable than first ones. Where cohabitation seems to work best in terms of marriage is first, number one, don't have children while you're cohabiting. That does that does take a big toll on the relationship. And number two, that cohabit like as part of an engagement before your first marriage. Then I think the evidence suggests that it, it, it is a strengthening factor. I think you're forgetting number three, don't cohabitate with Kevin Federline. <laughs> <laughs> that that too. <laughs> Good way to end. Good way to end. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. Good job for Ruben. Way to end on a high note. Yeah, really. Way to end with such a strong intellectual contribution. Yeah, thank you for coming. Oh, sure.